G'day, my name is Matt Brown and I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Genomics England and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear and anger. And there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. Welcome to the G word. Today, we'll be joined by Professor Sir Mark Caulfield, one of the founding employees of Genomics England and my predecessor as Genomics England's Chief Scientific Officer. Sir Mark is now Professor of Clinical Pharmacology and Vice Principal for Health at Queen Mary University, London. In addition to his outstanding contribution to genomics through his time at Genomics England, Mark has been a leading cardiovascular and hypertension and pharmacogenomics researcher of long standing. Today, we'll be discussing with Sir Mark his recollections of his time at, as Chief Scientific Officer at Genomics England, and additionally, his thoughts about the future of pharmacogenomics. Good afternoon, Mark, and thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I was hoping that we might actually uh, start off our, our conversation by talking about what it was like in the early days of Genomics England. You were, as I understand it, one of the original employees of CHELP, and I imagine it must have been uh, quite a, a nerve-wracking period with a, a large sense of responsibility to get it right, uh, to get the mission right, and to make sure that you achieved uh, what the opportunity gave you. Can you give us a bit of an insight into what it was like in the early days, starting off? Yes, Matt. So um, I was approached to become Chief Scientist of uh, Genomics England in May uh, 2013, and the company was launched on the 5th of July uh, 2013. It's fair to say that that it was both really exciting but really daunting in that um, we had the opportunity to sequence 100,000 genomes, but it was pretty clear that nobody had done that and that the systems were not in place to allow that to happen. So we set about forming a plan, which we mostly ended up sticking to, which allowed us to deliver to time and target the 100,000 genomes by the 31st of December 2018. Um, originally, we'd been hoped we would have finished by 2017, but it became quickly clear that wouldn't be possible. So the first thing we did was to look at establishing the infrastructure and then to establish a public and patients group that would guide us, and they have helped us set strategy, direction, and commented on what we've done and are throughout jail still to this day, which is, uh, I think, really, really served us well. So were there periods of time where you thought you weren't actually going to be able to achieve what you were expected to do? Uh, yes, Matt. I mean, there were several points. First of all, when we started, many people would not uh, come and join in because they were worried that it would not succeed. And uh, in fact, one notable uh, colleague of ours said to me, good luck with uh, Genomics England. From where I'm sitting, it will either be a roaring success or it will be an unmitigated disaster. And uh, if it's an unmitigated disaster, you're off to the Tower of London. And from where I'm sitting, it's just lucky they don't chop heads off any longer. So uh, some people in the community, including people who I, you and I would categorize as world leaders in the field, felt this was really challenging and very difficult to do. And we found that they were absolutely right. But we had a mission uh, to deliver and we pressed on with it. Our mission was to 
bring genomics to the NHS at scale, uh, to deliver the 100,000, to do it in an ethical and transparent framework, and to engage with industry as much as we could to stimulate a UK uh, genomics industry. Um, and on most of those things, I think we succeeded. Um, I think we uh, could potentially, with hindsight, have done better on industry stimulation. But um, it's, Matt, as you'll have guessed, it's quite tricky when you're trying to do something in the NHS to also have that commercial side to your operation. And really, we took a view, John Chisholm and I, that the biggest priority was to transform genomics in the NHS, and that if we did that, this would be a success, particularly if it created an enduring legacy. Yeah, so we might come back to the industry bit, obviously uh, a, a, an area which is uh, potentially contentious, um, but uh, one which I think is really important to delivering for patients. Can you tell us a little bit about, or expand for us a little bit about what were the, the really major challenges you faced initially and um, yes. how, how you went about solving those? So we were created anew and that um, slightly surprised the community. So what we needed to do was to win hearts and minds, particularly in the NHS. Um, you'll be familiar with NIHR research that suggested it takes between 9 and 16 years to get an innovation from a clinical trial into the health system. We couldn't afford to do that here. So we reached out to NHS England, who had been um, given a mandate to work with us on the project and uh, came up with the idea of uh, genomic medicine centres. Uh, which they then commissioned, and Sue Hill, uh, a key partner in this, worked with me to create 13 of those um, over the course of 18 months, and they provided the frontline NHS engagement. And this was so important, Matt, because Sue estimates that at uh, peak, uh, approximately 5,000 frontline staff touched this project at some point in their weekly work. And what that meant is that we had a, a cadre of champions at the end of the project who did not want to have been marched to the top of the hill and left there uh, with no transformation in the NHS. So almost when we were designing the Genomic Medicine Service, these people were the champions and the ambassadors that helped drive it through what would have been rather a difficult process in conventional NHS operations if we hadn't taken this approach. So. Getting the front line in at the outset was absolutely key, and they then become the advocates and champions for success. So sitting from uh, outside of Gel in the UK, um, my impression was that this was very much predominantly a rare disease-focused uh, initiative early on. Is that a fair comment? And uh, can you tell us about the differences in, in the challenges you faced with rare diseases and cancer? Absolutely. So when we started, Matt, um, there was a more uh, keenly developed um, rare disease service in the NHS. Cancer genomic testing was in its relative in infancy. There had been panel-based studies led by Cancer Research UK and some individual uh, single marker tests that were being trialed. But it's fair to say that um, there was very little cancer testing. So we started with a pilot in both rare disease and cancer. Um, we were also asked to look at infection, and we did uh, do some pathogen sequencing with tuberculosis. 
but our most major early wins were with rare disease. And the reason for that is because that community were already in place. They were able to have a feedback conduit to patients. And with cancer, we had to establish genomic tumor boards. We had to uh, win hearts and minds. But most importantly, we spent a lot of time optimizing the cancer pathway. And um, this really showed us the standard biopsy that we take patients and drop into a preservative is uh, really damaging for um, studying the genome and we really couldn't make that work at scale on a distributed framework so we re-engineered yes this is formal and fixed paraffin extract which is the yeah. standard process used throughout the world to preserve tissue so we re-engineered 400 molecular pathways in the NHS and that brought live fresh tissue pipelines, which are still available for use for whole genome sequencing in the NHS. We also showed convincingly that formalin really does distort your genomic architecture of your tumour and could lead to spurious findings. So we were convinced this was the right thing to do, but that did take us a long good time. So the majority of cancer enrolment took place during 2016, 17 and 18. Um, uh, and, but we did manage to enroll 17,339 patients in the cancer program. In infection, we worked on TB, um, and we worked with Public Health England, as was, would now be the Health Security Agency, and we sequenced um, 3,000 multidrug-resistant uh, uh, TB organisms, and they were a part of an international consortium, the Cryptic Study, and we published that work which showed not only could you use this for diagnosis, but you could also use it within 24 hours later to predict treatment responsiveness. So you could go in with the right medicine first time. And you know, when you and I were a medical school map, you used to have to culture those bacteria for six to eight weeks, and then your resistance to profiling would take you another few weeks, by which time the person would have been treated blindly with antibiotics. So this is quite an advance, and as a result, there's now a TB sequencing service live. Um, the data in rare disease and cancer also gave us a head of steam around the new genomic medicine service. Yeah, so uh, one of the unusual things about the program was that it tried to establish at the same time as a clinical service, a major research program built off the side of it. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about how you went about thinking how you were going to set up the research program and enable researchers to use the data? A really important thing at the outset that was a motivator is that the rare disease community and to some extent the cancer community had not worked on this scale of data before. And so we needed to encourage and stimulate that. We also wanted to make it openly accessible and free at the point of use at that time because that seemed most democratic to us. So we considered how we could organize this in something manageable, and we came up with the concept of the Genomics England Clinical Interpretation Partnership. The idea being the currency of free access was you drove up the value for clinical care of these data by publishing research. And we openly advertised for groups to self-organize, self-propose their leadership, um, and come forward, and um, approximately 40 domains, um, which range from 30 or 20 academics uh, from multiple parts of the world to 170, 180 academics, came together. 
uh, and began to work on the data. It's fair to say this was a steep learning curve for Genomics England and also for that community, because working in someone else's data center can come with challenges. So it took us a while to optimize that environment and to make it really uh, functional. Um, I would still say that we encounter challenges in managing that, or researchers encounter challenges. But to my understanding, there have been over 160 publications in various journals, some are reviews, so maybe we wouldn't count those. But if you think about the fact that on the 5th of July map, Genomics Inc. will be nine years old. In the same time frame, Biobank UK, which cost about the same amount, had published really very little, almost nothing. So I think what we've got is a community that are, are stimulated and can be invigorated to make the research that we need to translate this into clinical care happen. In cancer, it's been more challenging because um, we had to uh, get a community that hadn't really worked on this scale of data at all uh, to come to terms with that. And But now there are interesting observations. For example, the recent science paper that you published with Serena Nixanel describing new signatures for cancer. So it's a really exciting time. And I suspect we're about to begin to see the peak period of research for Genomics England. And uh, what we did do was democratically open the data to the world. I think that's the right thing to do. And the problem we faced, Matt, which we really, really had to think about was these data are not readily shippable around the world. You can't just ship them out. Then there were issues. We were born in a period when there was a problem with health service data. This was called care.data, data, which is where the NHS had released data to third parties and not really fully established the principles in the NHS. And as a result, we have a consent which says we won't release individual level data. This has actually turned out to be really good for you and I, because what it does mean is that our patients really trust us to gather all of the data on them and are very willing for us to have their entire health record, anything, any exposure, any problem they face, they're really happy for us to receive that data electronically from NHS Digital. And this has been a real boost, I think, to Genomics England. And if we had a distributed framework, I wonder whether we would have carried patients and the public with us in the same extent, uh, given the proximity to the health system, and that this is data where we're returning a result that could influence your future health. I totally agree with you that the the strong acceptance of our patient participants of stewardship of the data enables us to work with them much more closely and uh, they've been much more open to sharing their personal health data with us and with other external researchers through the research environment than would have occurred if we'd been operating as a lending library. But it did create all sorts of challenges, I'm sure, in the early yes. days, which at times you must have been wondering whether you could have made life easier for yourselves by perhaps operating in a more lending library approach. Yes, so the, there's no doubt that we did get challenges on that. Uh, why don't you just give us the data? Um, when you explain the task of uh, sharing this data, and we now see that others who are managing similar data assets are uh, making data environments a bit like ours. So, for example, Biobank um, working with DNA Nexus to provide a platform for access to the whole genomes. Um, it's a similar, not exactly the same, but it's a similar model. Um, 
I actually think, as I look back on it, building an environment that others could work in and funding that, that was probably a, a, a very good step for us. My sense of the field is that whilst people having distributed data in their own environment makes it easier, the scale of this data and the uncertainty about how to analyze it and the forefront methodology um, uh, that we needed to develop together means that actually it's been safer for patients to have it in one place and invite people to come and work on the data in a reading library, not a lending library. So I think it's served us probably very well in reality. Uh, there would be, of course, people who would say, well, we'd be much further on if I could have it in my uh, data center. But the, then again, I set that against the fact that not many people have a, an 80 petabyte data center in which this data inhabits. And so, you know, that's normally the province of astrophysics. Even in genomics, it's relatively recent to have such an at-scale data center. Uh, and this is, you know, you, you, you really understand this. This is not an amateur sport to analyze these data. Uh, you know, you and I were started out at the beginning of the genome-wide association era, and we were feeling our way then. But this is like feeling your way with orders of magnitude much more complex data. I think it makes it safer to have a community approach. I think it has allowed Genomics England a degree of oversight, which has at times prevented things from being fed back into the clinic that actually would have been just not right uh, because there were inaccuracies in the interpretation. And so I think it has provided us with an extra layer of safety as well as a democratic platform for uh, actors. Um, so just going back to that journey that you were going on as Joel uh, built up, there must have been a point where you suddenly felt uh, that, that it was actually going to succeed for, and that your earlier anxieties had basically were overcome. Yes. Um, Can you tell us about when, that, when you actually reached that moment where you felt that you were actually going to make it? Well, I think... Um, for people who are not you and I, um, this was uh, a government priority project. It was something they really funded. And I have to say, ministers stuck by us through thick and thin. And we had some challenging times. And we were closely questioned by ministers about the rate of progress. I became optimistic toward the end of 2017, as enrollment was really taking off. But to give you a measure of how important that last year was, between the 7th of February 2018 and the 2nd of December at 2.40 a.m. in the morning, which was a Sunday, I remember it well, we sequenced 52,000 genomes, whole genomes. So we had a lot to do in that last year. But a, a week later, we were able to announce to the press and the public that we had met the 100,000 genome target. Um, and... That was very much thanks to our part, fabulous partnership with Sue Hill and the NHS and the genomic medicine centers that, that made them front and center in this. But it also, and I, I need to uh, pay tribute to this, it, it also was our partnership with Illumina, which meant that they did the sequencing. I was very keen, Matt, to avoid the risk that we would own large numbers of gray boxes that would be effectively time expired every three years. So we went in August 2013, John and I, to Illumina in San Diego and met with the board members 
the executive directors and, and Jay Flatley. And we said, look, you know, we were asked, how are you going to do this project? And we said, well, we're not actually going to do the sequencing. And they said, well, how on earth are you going to sequence 100,000 genomes? And we said, you're going to do it. And the reason we want you to do it is because you are the company that have invented this technology. You own it. You know the most about it. If we do this, we're going to discover all the things that, A, you already know. We will discover some things you don't know, but you won't have been involved in the latter part. And that information will be hugely useful to you to understand further aspects of your chemistry, the analytics, and you'll be close to the largest single point of care project of its type in the world in a direct health system. And the holy grail for genomics, and this is what motivates you and I and gets us up in the morning, is we want to make this meaningful for our patients. Um, and they came on side. This was not their business model. And they co-invested to date in both the contracts we've had with them. They will have invested about £100 million in the United Kingdom as a result of those contracts uh, in various different ways. And they placed a new European HQ here. But I wouldn't yeah. underestimate the importance of that partnership and the partnership with the NHS to delivery of that. So I think it really is credit shared because that's the right thing to do. And our participants who stuck around with us, because you know at times, Matt, it was very difficult even for us to return results. So we, people were waiting for sometimes two years, two and a half years. Um, and you asked earlier about uh, things I would do differently if I had my time again. The first is I would have had an app so we could communicate effectively with our participants, not to give them individualized results, but to keep them up to speed with where we were so that we could have given them general information. And they could also then have shared information about their clinical state that would have given us an ongoing dialogue and could have been useful for our research environment. That's my my biggest regret, if I'm honest. Yeah, so uh, that's... You know, one regret for lots and lots of successes. Uh, so we shouldn't harp too much about that. But um, I am interested in thinking about uh, what you might have done differently as a researcher if you were starting off again in terms of creating a research resource out of uh, the genomes project. So I think we we now know that some of the mains we set up that I described earlier in the Genomics England Clinical Interpretation Partnership have not really worked. So I think the moment is right to reform that structure somewhat. At that time, Genomics England itself was not meant to be a research organization. It, it was never uh, said that we couldn't publish, but we, we aimed not to compete with the researchers that we're working with. And I still think in any new model, a collaborative framework where we're working together with researchers from around the world will, we'll, as you and I know from our own research, will actually serve both of us very, very well. And so I think the moment's right to reform that um, and to look uh, at that model. Uh, I, don't, I do think that um, there are some things that Genomics England itself is extremely well positioned to do. So there are learnings and research about our pipeline, how we've developed it, how we've iterated it, the things that went well, the things that went badly because we did have some spectacular IT challenges along the way. These would be um, very, very useful to share globally. We are good at sharing information um, internationally. That has stood us in good stead, and we have a lot of supporters. Genomics England has a lot of supporters around the world as a result. 
I would encourage that that continues, and then in whatever we we um, take forward as the next phase of research, we're open, collaborative, and we encourage an ecosystem in which we can move this not just to diagnoses, but onward to potential therapies. And one of the areas I think that's a real battleground for research now is, you, you'd have seen this, we're generating lots of variants of uncertain significance, meaning they may have some biological plausibility, but we can't concretely return those to the NHS, so they end up being a BUS. Unless somebody tackles that and sorts that out, we're just going to generate more and more of those. So I do think that there is a moment here for a, for a significant effort alongside the genomic signaling platform and the genomic medicine service to provide functional annotation. Um, and I think that's a really important next step. The other thing I think that's a real research opportunity in cancer is um, work that we're doing that's, that's unpublished, which is led by Narupa Muragezu and Alona Sosinski, with John Ambrose at Genomics England, is, is showing that um, there is a wealth of data in cancer genomes. This is where you're measuring the genome of the tumor. And the, the, the relevance of that data, I think, is only beginning to become clear. So there are people around who will say to you and I, I don't know why you're doing these whole genomes because, you know, we've got these nice panels and don't we know all there is to know about cancer? Well, my my feeling is, having seen some whole genome data in cancer and read the science paper that you published recently, there is plenty more to discover. And we have only scratched the surface of what the benefits of a whole genome will be in cancer. And I think with the next iteration of the test directory and the potential expansion of the cancer groupings, we're beginning to get to the right place. Now, when we show the real benefits of this, and we perhaps affect another price point fall, there will be no reason to do uh, panel testing if we can get the price down further. Because once you hit the intercept point, the information you're going to get from a whole genome is so much more. For example, you can get pharmacogenomics on everyone. Pharmacogenomics is directly relevant to cancer, one of the commonly commonly used chemotherapy agents, bifluorouracil and capsidabin, uh, are um, toxic if they um, come across the wrong genetic makeup in you and your and my genome. This is a variant called DPYD, and we bought DPYD testing live in the NHS partly because of the work that we've done at JAIL on whole genomes, but partly because of the work of others, showing that preemptive testing is the right way to go to avoid severe toxicity. And recently in our pharmacogenomics work map, we have correlated in real-world data adverse outcomes from 5-fluorouracil and capsidabin with genotypes measured by whole genomes, showing that you can derive this data meaningfully and usefully from whole genomes, which we hope to publish shortly. Excellent. Uh, there was a lot in that. So one of the things I wanted to just come back to you about was the comment about the fact that our understanding of cancer genomes is still incomplete. Uh, you and you will remember back in the days at the beginning of the genome-wide association study year, everybody thought that 2,000 samples genotyped was going to be, uh, case samples was going to be enough. And now we know that that's out by a couple of log orders probably. And I remember similarly at the beginning of the uh Cancer Genome Atlas, uh, people talking about 45 to 90 cancer genomes being enough to actually describe the mutational profiles of cancers. And of course, 
that turns out to be wildly inaccurate. Um, but uh, I think Shell is in a really good position to bring together very large numbers to tens, hundreds of thousands of cancer uh, genomes or large-scale panels to enable a lot more of the complexity of the cancer genome to be analysed and uh, try to be sorted through by AI approaches and such like. I completely agree with you, Matt. And thinking about this, I mean, obviously, you, you and I learned from the Genome-Wide Association era and our over-optimistic expectations. So what we found from the Genome-Wide Association era was that the effect size of individual variants that were associated with disease was smaller than we might have expected. So we've been over-optimistic about our sample numbers. I think the same was true in the uh, exome and whole genome era. Um, and, and actually then, if you think about it, Matt, if you've got uh, somatic mutations, which are relatively newly in cells that are dividing at a rapid rate and never stop dividing, and accruing new mutations all the time. It's, it's, it's unsurprising that the driver mutations usually have a frequency, an intermediary frequency of between 2 and 20%. And so as a result, it's not unsurprising that you need large numbers to detect low frequency variants in the population and to be able to um, make a meaningful association of those with outcome. So, and that's without uh, scratching the surface on other types of structural variants and copy number variants and what their role might be in predicting cancer risk or actually driving the tumour or even determining the form. So I think there's a fabulous future with long-read genomes, which um, you are exploring at Genomics England, to do that and also to integrate epigenetics because I think um, methylation marks on the tumours may be very telling of how we uh, uh, therapeutically approach tumours. There's already some evidence of that effect in brain tumours. I wouldn't be surprised if we find that elsewhere. Mark, obviously the adventure with Genomics England uh, is an ongoing one. Uh, you've achieved a phenomenal amount in setting us up to where we are at the moment. But now you're moving on to new challenges. I, I noticed in doing my homework for this interview that you've acknowledged, as you would put it, a tendency to workaholicness in previous interviews, and uh, and uh, now that you've moved on from Genomics England, I'm wondering where that workaholicness tendency is uh, is heading you next. Well, so Matt, part of um, I felt my responsibility when I left Genomics England, I left because I'd done eight years and we delivered the 100K project, the 100,000 genomes. We'd also got a new genomic medicine service and I'd helped uh, uh, form a new program which had gone to funded by the government and particularly the one bit that I'm really proud of is the newborn program where I chaired a group for the TMO, uh, the chief medical officer looking at this and we concluded the moment was right to test whether whole genomes could influence the outcome for a child before their fifth birthday on particularly disorders of intervention uh, where you could make an intervention today and they turn out to be one, one in 190 live births roughly in the UK, about 10 children born every day. Um, and what I've been doing since I left is I became involved in a life sciences program at my university, Queen Mary. I'm also an NHS doctor at Bart's Health, and uh, I've been leading something called Bart's Life Sciences. And that's a million square feet of um, vacated hospital real estate in Whitechapel that we're going to redevelop for life sciences. Uh, and I'm very hope, hopeful that one day Genomics England will come and base itself there 
uh, right next to the NHS, because I believe that NHS academic industry partnerships are going to be really important in this next phase. We've seen the success of that model with Biobank, and to some extent, it's beginning to make traction with Genes and Health. We've also got a multi-company consortium now with 25 million and our future health. So that could be a model moving forward for Gel. I've also been trying to publish some of the things. As, as, as you um, probably appreciate more than anyone else apart from me, you don't get a lot of time in the day when you're at Genomics England. It's full on from early morning till often into the evening. And um, a lot of what you're doing is trying to make uh, your service at the NHS level and the pr programs that you're planning have come to fruition in the safest possible manager, ma manner with the maximal patient benefit. So, so I've been working on a few publications that I promised I would deliver to our participants for the advancement of this, you know, and we have now published some of the rare disease work in the New England Journal. We're about to publish some of the cancer work. Um, earlier this year, we published a new way of reading repeat expansions, a particular type of commonest neurological variant that causes neurological disease. And we've also published on severe COVID, and I'm very pleased that worked out because that study in Nature showed that we could identify 16 novel loci with whole genomes and also showed the value of whole genomes. Though I think the next paper, 14,000 cases and controls, will actually show even more benefit. And this is in the vanguard of the application of whole genomes in an association-style study. And there, in this comparison, we've got an extreme comparison between severely ill people and mild or asymptomatic people. And so it's really exciting to see that come forward. Um, and the other thing that I've uh, done is um, we are, at the present time, uh, just in planning for the development in Whitechapel, but I've inaugurated a new Precision Healthcare University Research Institute there, um, which is, I hope, going to work with entities like studies like GEL, which I hope will be the future, because I think probably what we would have referred to as genomics is really multiomics in the future, and that multiomics combined with really deep characterization of patients, uh, using routinely collected health data, mobilizing that, researching it, and marching the findings into healthcare, hopefully in a rapid phase, and more rapid than we managed early on in GEL, will be the future. And, and therefore, I want to position my organization to partner Genomics England and others to make sure that the NHS gets those benefits at the earliest possible opportunity. And Matt, you, you know, you, you are exactly the right person to be leading this at Genomics England because you, of all people that I met, really, really understand how transformative this can be. And we've got to seize this moment to change this for everyone, forever, worldwide. Yeah, it's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, what you're outlining there sounds like uh, a career or two more worth to go. And uh, so I hope you could manage to deliver on all of that. That's uh, It would be fantastic if you did achieve it. Well, it's not in the old dog yet, Matt. <laughs> so uh, can I wind back to perhaps when you were a younger hound and ask, <laughs> you know, if you, were, if you were starting all over again now, uh, what area do you think has the most promise uh, for the coming decades and where would you head? In terms of genomics or multiomics, I think we did the right thing with rare disease and cancer. Um, I must say the COVID findings have slightly surprised me in that we've been able to detect a lot with relatively modest sample sizes, but that's because in some cases the effect size of the variants when probed by a virus has been more. 
So I think there could be a more prominent role in host response of genomics than we've previously been led to believe by the genome-wide studies that have been done to date. I think doing the newborn study is very, very important. But I also think we need to systematically uh, evaluate as a research tool uh, the utility of uh, genomes and even genotyping in prediction of risk. Can we really predict risk using this? One area I think is really ripe for the future, and I was delighted when Genomics Genome were funded to do diversity work, is pharmacogenomics. And I do think that as 99.5% of us have at least one gene-drug pair that's internationally accepted as potentially harmful or will lead to medicine inefficacy, then that is a battleground that is relevant for all of us and the whole of the whole of humanity. And I think like you, Matt, we've really scratched the surface but not done justice to the inclusivity that we need to answer the question for diverse communities across the world. And that, I think, is an important phase now that Genomics England is entering. And I think that will um, help us get the right therapies to the right people first time and avoid some of the problems and challenges people have, especially if we can fully realize pharmacogenomics in the health system. Yeah, I'm absolutely on board with you there too, Mark. Mark, that's been a, a fascinating run through an amazing amount of translational genomics research that's going to make a huge difference, is already making a huge difference to clinical practice in the UK and uh, will do increasingly so over the coming decades. Thank you so much for your time with us this afternoon and I look forward to uh, seeing the, the next phase of your career and what it brings to uh, the benefit of uh, Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. You can find out more about Sir Mark online through Queen Mary University London's website to discover the work he does. If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind you'd like us to interview, please do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and that if you've enjoyed listening, giving us a five-star review really helps other people to find out about the series. We appreciate your support very much. Until next time, I'm Matt Brown. See you on the next episode of The G Word.